You're listening to an ACCA podcast. My name is Max Delaney and it's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening to ACCA um, for the next iteration of the Writing and Concept series with this evening's talk by Chitran titled Attention is a Form of Prayer. Before we proceed, I would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we work here and we meet and welcome you and extend our respects to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. ACK is very pleased to be able to co-present programs in partnership with innovative ideas-based initiatives such as writing and concepts. Uh, which has contributed significantly to the discussion around contemporary cultural production since its inception in, two, in 2016, and which has introduced us to some great thinking over the last few years. The first two years of the programs are now collected in the handsome publications, which um, you can see here and you can find at the Acker Bookshop, um, and yeah, which have, have brought together some really great thinking and writing, um, and. Uh, uh, really, I think, introduced a great new community of practice. Um, we're especially pleased to be hosting writer, editor, poet and artist Chi Tran's lecture this evening, and we look forward to their words and their thinking. Um, we're also pleased to note that she will also be returning to Acker in the coming weeks as a writer-in-residence with artist Arben Zika, working specifically on a collaborative written project in dialogue with our forthcoming um, exhibition, Haroon Mertzer, The Construction of an Act. Uh, Haroon's show is the 2019 uh, edition of the ACCA International. Um, and a central component of that exhibition, a new commission, will include a dedicated studio which will be constructed in the centre of the gallery um, for local and international collaborators to undertake seri a series of residencies across a range of disciplines over a number of weeks in the exhibition, including composition, music and dance. And it will culminate in a live performance on the 8th of October. Um, Chi Tran and Arben Zika's writing residency will also be, um, uh, uh, will proceed, um, which has been commissioned in collaboration with Liquid Architecture and will lead to an outcome in their new publication disclaimer. So we're really excited to be working on that collaboration as well. Um, a quick plug to say that Haroon Mertzer, the construction of an act opens on Friday the 13th, a sort of auspicious date. So you're all very welcome to join us for the opening and the performance itself will be on 8th of October. Um, the project is presented in partnership with Melbourne International Arts Festival and support and the performance supported by Liquid Architecture, and so we hope you can join us for that evening. But in the meantime, we're delighted this evening to welcome you to ACCA for writing and concepts um, in what is the final week of our current exhibition on vulnerability and doubt, and it gives me great pleasure now to welcome and introduce the founder and the co-moderator of the Writing and Concepts uh, program, Jan van Skijk, um, our host this evening, who will formally introduce Chi Tran. So please welcome Jan. Thank you very much, Max. No, it doesn't feel right to be up here. That's, that's for you, Chi. Um, <clears throat> the introductions continue. My job is to now plug the sponsors of Writing and Concepts. Max, having beautifully introduced the series, thank you very much, Max. Um, Writing and Concepts is um, sponsored by uh, Aramata University um, and also produced by Future Tense, the other two directors of which are here tonight. So we have Fionn Butler, who will be running the Q&A session afterwards, and Leith Thomas, who doesn't want to be introduced because he's holding a glass of wine instead of a camera. We do, however, the reason he's not holding a camera is that we have a photographer here tonight who will be taking some photos and videos. So if you would like your likeness edited out of those, please let one of us know so we can do so. 
Um, Future Tense was founded in um, 2016. The uh, lectures are recorded. When there are slides, those are also recorded, and those can be found on our website, writingandconcepts.com.au. We can also join our mailing list to find out about future talks. And our books are available, as Max has already pointed out. I've got some there to wave around, but I think I'll hurry through so we can get along with today's event. At ACCA, I'd like to thank Max Delaney, Miriam Kelly, Adrian Hayward for helping put this event together, and also for being one of the many venues that sponsors the Writing and Concepts events. This is the 76th Writing and Concepts event, and it will be presented by Chi Tran, the title of which is Attention is a Form of Prayer. Chi Tran is a writer, editor, and an artist who makes poems that may be text, essay, object, sound, or drawing. Chi is primarily interested in working with language as a means of coming to terms. Their work has been published in and exhibited at Incendium, Radical Library Press, Cordite Poetry Review, Punk Cafe, Australian Poetry, Recess Gallery, Liminal, First Draft, and many others. In May uh, 2019, with support from the Ian Potter Cultural Trust Foundation, she will be undertaking a three-month structured mentorship and assistantship under renowned poet May May Brusenberg in New Mexico and New York. And that brings to an end my introduction of Chi. And please now join me in welcoming her to the stage. Thank you very much. Hi. Thanks for coming, everyone. Um, I just want to preface my talk with, if you need to move around, please feel free while I'm talking. If you need to get a drink, go to the bathroom. There's a gender-neutral bathroom. Um, I want everyone to feel comfortable, so, yeah. Attention is a form of prayer. Attention to me can be a kind of prayer. To the space that I occupy, attention to the context within which that space for me is made possible. And so I acknowledge that we are on the stolen lands of the Rwandri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and I pay my respects to any and all Indigenous peoples who may be here tonight. I acknowledge my own elders, my own family and ancestors, whose plural and complex cultures of world building influence my own attempts to do so. I acknowledge that a lot of the work I did in preparing this lecture, lecture was on the land and waters of the Lenape peoples, now known as Manhattan, New York, where I learned a lot from my mentors and my elders in writing. So I've approached the writing of this talk as a poetic essay, a string of fragments of sorts. I hope that my speaking it out loud gives the language some kind of dimension beyond what a physical page may be able to give it. And I hope that this can give it some kind of air to breathe, some life and room to move, and perhaps make dialogue with people in this room with me. I approached the writing of this talk with the knowledge that every idea that lies within this paper was already pre-existing and not necessarily formed by me. Theoretically, I don't have much more to say about language than what has already been said by those before me and those alongside me. And I don't claim to present any new ideas, but I hope that I have found a new way of making these ideas felt.
part one. I wanted to write about the failure of language, and I wanted to write about how the failure of language is an enduring matter of culture, an enduring matter of the project of poetics. I wanted to write an essay about how I do not believe in the practice of writing as an answer, but rather as an undying mode of inquiry. Poetry is question, academic rhetoric as poetry, and acting critical theory in my daily life as a crucially feminist gesture. How do we reconnect with the gestural origins of language? Asked Jackie Wang. All of this to say, I wanted to write about the failure of language and I somewhat failed at that. I recently said to my friends that all I want to do is give my experience the language it deserves. Forgetting that words cannot always be of service to meaning forgetting that language indeed fails a lot of the time, and that my compulsion to master language is maybe something to interrogate. It's not that I or we, as writers, as practitioners engaging with language, using language, organising language, do not see the problem of language as failure, or do not know that the problem of language is not happening. But rather, maybe it's that it is happening all of the time. It is ubiquitous failing all of the time, which makes us forget that this failure is indeed happening all of the time. And I speak of the failure of language as a problem, not as one to be solved necessarily, but maybe more as a problem to pick from, branch off of, as a means of reaching an understanding for myself, that language maybe by condition is non-local, meaning the axes by which we engage with it are multidirectional. We come by language, we are attentive to it, and we have faith in it through the lens of how it can be used against us and through how we are taught to use it against ourselves. And we come by language and instill our faith in language from ways we've seen ourselves reflected in it. Language that resonates, feels familiar, language that holds and builds us. Tonight, I'll be drawing from various artists and writers who have used language in a way that keeps me feeling faithful to the act of writing, faithful to the possibilities of language, cases of writing that have simultaneously affirmed and undone me. If words can't always act in service of meaning, I wonder what we could make of that problem. Again, I mean problem as a function and as a catalyst for thinking, not necessarily something to be solved. Maybe the meaning of a text cannot always be known. Most of the time, I can only guess the meaning of a poem and lay some kind of faith into that guess. Faith being something I can only instill into things I do not or cannot know. Maybe the not knowing of a meaning of a text does not have to be, does not always mean that we failed. Language is maybe irreducible and maybe expression too which maybe means that a singular meaning or a singular statement of experience cannot be reduced from one's description of it. And I don't suggest any of this to mean that language is void of intention or that it is incapable of making meaning. I say all this to try and understand that language can sometimes have a habit of getting in the way, and it is fruitful to remind myself of that, to admit that to myself as a writer, a reader, a listener as someone trying to communicate my experience and build my own framework for making meaning.
part two. I think of witnessing as a form of generosity, a kind of ceremony that takes time to move across from one plane to another. Between herself and you, combined experience can become information, and this information then constructs itself into a surface of empathy. Its physical expression fluctuates, depending on how many people interact with it. A single person may touch the surface, whether by accident or routine, and despite all possible contingencies, it can often mean nothing. We may hope for accurate mimesis, but to live an expression is not the same as to represent it. Hannah Black says that accurate mimesis seems to be a European obsession. And that doesn't mean that it's bad, but just that we could probably do away with it. And I want to read an excerpt from a conversation with Hannah Black. Uh, the interviewer asked Hannah, were you always a writer as well as an artist? And do they feel like disparate things to you? She says, I think the thread through what I do is a struggle with writing. I have an almost superstitious idea that you only get really good at something when you're fully cognizant of the problems that it contains and you're in touch with your failure. Not in the sense of a deliberate failure or modernist grand failure or whatever, but just in the sense that at your utmost extension, with everything you can give to something, it will still somehow fail to be adequate to reality or experience. And I find that problem really interesting. End quote. I consider the cumulative nature of feeling and I believe in it, but I struggle with the idea of experience as being additive. And then I consider an excerpt from A Dialogue on Love where Eve Sedgwick states the following. My way of paying attention to people is additive, non-narrative. Thus, I don't have a sense of change in people, for example, if I notice something new, I don't think they've changed. Instead, I think this is an additional way X is. It grows out of some kind of stress on object permanence. How to keep the same person, a kind of cubist three-dimensionality. End quote. And then I consider certain emotions, such as falling asleep and listening, and then all the possible modes within which these emotions can exist. I consider the ways I express certain emotions, such as falling asleep and listening, and I ask myself, is this authentic? Is this intimate? How effective is this? Am I being cooperative? Can you hear me? Do you understand me? Is this coded? Is this charming? Should I be suspicious of myself? Is this undoing? What is this achieving? Forms of time may hold, become pregnant, or extend a finger, but I don't think that they can replace one another. I nurture the idea of permanence in people and objects, even though I don't always desire it. Encountering a familiar problem can bring a kind of intimacy with yourself, and by problem, it doesn't have to be difficult, but that it just requires you to pay attention. 
We may sense change as spontaneous or incalculable, like an iridescent surface. But sometimes just picturing an evenness of light is enough for us to discern a physical structure and express a kind of direction. I tend to want to be simultaneous with everything around me, which is to say, I like to move along with others. I tend to want the main experience to be dialogic, to be relational and contingent, rather than one where I'm just talking to myself. I need someone here with me, in this space with me, working within a similar feeling to me and within the same intentions as me. The process of determining and grounding my intention is maybe one that is lifelong. An intention is important to me because I think it is what can give my words an afterlife, an energy that doesn't die and can carry meaning even after it is read. Intention can have the ability to sustain language and my relationship to it. In 2017, I interviewed Maymay Bersenbruja, who's an amazing poet, and she kind of became my mentor earlier this year and I got to spend some time with her. Um, in the interview for Cordite, I asked Maymay about intention and she says, as a writer, intentionality is important because language is the scaffolding with which I engage and interweave with the world. If I'm good to words and good to language in everyday life, then that virtue will strengthen the work, end quote. I appreciate her answer here because I relate to it in that I often ask myself, what does it mean to be good to language? How can I be good to language? Have I been good to it? Does part of being good to language mean paying attention to it, keeping faith in it, and maybe in a way praying to it? I don't think of myself as a mystic, but I think the answer to the last question is yes. Praying to language, paying absolute unmixed attention to language, that continues to help me write and has gradually become a big part of my practice. I come from a place of knowing that writing is in itself a problem. The want for writing comes from within the problem, not from a desire to abolish it. Speaking for myself, I know that the difficulty of language, I almost even want to say the impossibility of it, can be challenging and disheartening. But the difficulty of language, the failure of it, is probably what also keeps bringing me back to it. The problem of language still isn't solved, and even though I try to avoid speaking in absolutes, it probably will never be solved. It's not singular, and it can't be singular. And I like to think of it in terms of contingency. As a term, a contingent proposition is defined to be neither necessarily true nor necessarily false. And I don't use that as a philosophy because I feel sure of it in any way. Rather, I use it because it is helpful to me at this moment, to kind of maintain this outlook of entanglement, to carry the feeling that everything is intertwined and that everything is in relation to, it, to each other. It's inseparable. In a fractal conception, I am a cell-sized unit of the human organism, and I have to use my words to leverage a shift in the system by how I am, as much as with the things I do. This means bringing my values into my decision-making when it comes to choosing language. 
to choose my words with purpose and with sincerity. When I am beginning the process of writing a new text, I often feel disorientated. Every single time it comes to writing something new, language suddenly and once again feels completely unfamiliar. There is a kind of defamiliarization process I take myself through every time I finish working on a poem, or not finish, but I decide against any more editing and let it be. And this disorientation feels daunting every time it happens. But I've also learned that it is part of the point of the project of language and poetics. As a writer, it is part of my task to recognise and admit this awkwardness, to anchor myself within that, to be sincere and not try to separate myself from it. It's important for me to practise sincerity within language because the only way for me to deal with an insincere world is to become so absolutely sincere. I consider an excerpt from the writer Elena Ferrante. She says, Sincerity, as far as I'm concerned, is the torment and at the same time the engine of every literary project. The most urgent question for a writer may seem to be, what experiences do I have as my material? But that's not right. The more pressing question is, what is the word? What is the rhythm of the sentence? What tone best suits the things I know? Without the right words, without long practice in putting them together, nothing can come out alive and true. Literary truth is entirely a matter of wording, and it is directly proportional to, to the energy that one is able to impress on the sentence. And when it works, there is no cliche or stereotype of popular literature that resists it. It reanimates, it revives, and subjects everything to its needs. It feels as if parts of the brain and of your entire body, parts that have been dormant, are enlarging your consciousness, making you more sensitive. You can't say how long it will last. You tremble at the idea that it might suddenly stop and leave you midstream. To be honest, you never know if you've developed the right style of writing or if you've made the most out of it. A writer works hard to be flexible. End quote. Part three. Every cell in your body emits light. I look up and across to gain a sense of feeling that I'm moving along. Looking out releases my boundaries and I continue working toward a mission of wholeness. Some people don't really believe in the conscious order of feeling, which is to say, they don't believe that feeling occurs chronologically and with intentions. And I understand why others don't, but I think I do believe in it. I strive to work from feeling, from sensing vibrations, heat, and the energies of light. I focus in on what could become information and I ask it to be my kin. I try not to feel embarrassed, to move or be clumsy, to leak, sweat or bleed. I like to collect my own deposits. I may be surveilled while leaking from the body, but it does not stop me. If the matter in my line of vision is held long enough in the light, I can shift my perspective 
and it will restructure the molecules. My mother's mother died in her sleep, a single mother of six. They placed her into the earth a few months ago, but I could not be there, so I could only think about her and how skies do leak. My prayers now feel multiplied, directions of care diversified, and my spirit expanded. It begins to rain. I realise that the sky is not as solid as it can appear, or as I hope for it to be. I consider certain emotions such as loss and structures collapsing, and I wonder whether it is necessary to dress up this feeling in order to bear its gravity. It's a feeling I know I will be in relation to for the rest of my life, just like being touched or being interrogated. And so I cling to grief as much as I can, despite also knowing that it holds the ability to transform itself into something that often resembles violence more than it doesn't. I consider practices that embody violence and what spaces they occupy and the textures that they have, maybe like a clumsy corrugation and the differences between the ones we see as violence and ones we see as necessary and therefore stop seeing. I consider doing and being as a means of coming to terms, action as a continual long breath, and I take a certain kind of pleasure in the work that is endurance. I consider the cumulative nature of feeling and a result of that, the cu cumulative nature of articulation. Adrienne Marie Brown reminds me that grief is a worthwhile use of my time and that my body will feel only as much as it is able to. I consider certain emotions such as what sorry. I consider certain emotions such as what makes one addressable and whether we address others for the sole purpose of trying to mold them into something more answerable. Part 4. I wait in order for experience to be felt in retrospect. I continue to innovate myself as a subject under seemingly shared governance in hope of feeling understood. I say, a thing and a thing cannot be the same, as if I can know. The phenomenon of this, a response that when counted on another hand is merely a condition. I feel inclined to propose a method of articulation, but it relies on the falsehood of a given. Expression instills in me a kind of belief that whatever we may consider as shared is likely false. Commonality is a melt. I can't mold it into a mutual hold. My sentiment is sometimes borrowed. In many ways, my empathy is a problem. And I speak of myself as a malleable compound, but by that I just mean my fingers can bend like so as I gesture towards something that resembles reciprocity. I want to talk about reciprocity. There's a process through which we glean direction spontaneously in relating to another. If we dissect a diagram of two or more people, we may begin to see how a relationship becomes information. I think, aesthetically, reciprocity is beautiful, and so I want to believe in it. 
I want to have faith in it as a means of relating to the people around me. But I'm also wary of praising it. When there is an expectation within reciprocity for some kind of returns, for it to be a gesture of some sort of exchange. It can sometimes be a dangerous tool for qualitative differentiation, for hierarchizing value, imbuing value into people. And it's sometimes impossible, reciprocity, because maybe we expect it to make us feel in the end in a way that cannot always be a given. I feel it's common to feel marred by an instance of failed reciprocity, where one has not felt met by another, where one has not felt met with understanding. And how do we then live in this condition of failed reciprocity? Part five. I consider Claudia Rankine in her lyric, Don't Let Me Be Lonely. She says, and it's a bit of a long quote, but it's really important and beautiful. She says, Sometimes I think it is sentimental or excessive, certainly not intellectual or perhaps too naive, too self-wounded to value each life like that, to feel lost to the point of being bent over each time. But there's no innovating loss. It was never invented. It happened as something physical, something physically experienced. It's not something an I discusses socially. Though Myung Mi Kim did say that the poem is really a responsibility to everyone in a social space. She did say it was okay to cramp, to clog, to fold over at the gut, to have to put hand to flesh, to have to hold the pain and then to translate it here. She did say in so many words that what alerts alters. End quote. The poem is a responsibility to everyone in a social space. Even if there is the potential to fall or fail within the space of language, it still must offer some kind of afterlife to us. The poem as a responsibility must offer some kind of continuity, an affirmation after the feeling. The poem should provide a kind of haunting where the intangible can acquire some kind of dimension. Things that take time to dry tend to have a residual condition of haunting. Language as a way to document our experience is a necessary form of utterance. And language may be a mess, but a mess is still a legitimate unit of measure. I consider some words from a hero of mine, undoubtedly one of my deepest influences, one of my most unmooring elders in the practice of writing, Audre Lorde. She says this. The quality of light by which we scrutinize our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which, which, which we hope to bring about through those lives. It is within this light that we form those ideas by which we pursue our magic and make it realized. This is poetry as illumination, for it's through poetry that we give name to those ideas which are, until the poem, nameless and formless, about to be birthed but already felt. Therefore, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity for our existence. It forms the quality of light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, 
first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we give name to the nameless so it can be thought. Our poems formulate the implications of ourselves, what we feel within and dare to make real. For within living structures defined by profit, by linear power, by institutional dehumanization, our feelings were not meant to survive. Kept around as unavoidable adjuncts or pleasant pastimes, feelings were expected to kneel to thought as women were expected to kneel to men. But women have survived, as have poets, and there are no new pains. We have felt them all already." End quote. I've learned to use the practice of writing as a form of prayer, as a funnel for catharsis, as a method of recording my body, my feeling, as a political practice on a micro level. The choices I make in terms of what words I choose to use, what language I per prefer to evoke every day, I hope, is a reflection of the weight language carries. Fatima al-Qadiri says, the devotional human voice might be the greatest sound ever. To use language is a form of devotion. Language is a kind of matter that charges through movement and functions through change. It matters, and I want it to continue mattering. And as much as it is a problem, as much as it will keep failing, language and writing, to me, are services for listening. Language is an undoubtedly precarious, and it cannot always promise stability, but the indeterminacy within the word is partly the beauty of it. Language at its best, can be a service for signaling trouble whilst also collecting energy. It helps me to feel true and assists me in moving simultaneously with those around me and with change that is ongoing. Language indeed releases my boundaries and if I am good to language, it can help me move toward a mission of wholeness. Thank you. Hi, hi everybody. Um, we're going to start a little Q&A session, so while you're all formulating some questions, which I hope you do, because I'm sure you're all here because you know and love Chi's work, um, I was going to try my hardest to formulate on the spot something as well. Um, so I was interested in the sort of, I hate to use the word, but like theological is the best word that I've got for it at this point in time, because I'm just trying to point to it. remind me what that means? So theological, like it's a set of like principles around spiritual belief, I suppose, but it's more attached to like a more Christianity, I suppose. And that's where I've drawn it from anyway, so I don't know if it, it applies across multiple planes of spirituality. But you do mention belief and having a belief in words, and I kind of always assume that um, being able to have faith and belief in the fixed meaning of words is always across the board, whether it is metaphor or whether it is a strict meaning, especially when you think of the application of strict terms and their solid meaning in like a legal sense, you know, we still have to have a belief in them. Um, but you do use um, quite a few beautiful like metaphors that 
do point to a very like spiritual or theological principle in a way, so attention as a form of prayer or it was writing as a form of service. And there was one more that I got that was really good. Um, that is witnessing is generosity. Um, can you maybe elaborate on like your feelings about the necessity of imbuing belief but in like a very more open, formless sense into words such as things that assume to have strict meaning like processes and labour intensive sort of things like writing and attention. Yeah. Um, Sorry, it's a big, yeah, I'm like, just talk. No, I just, I don't, I want to do the question justice, but maybe I can't do that tonight. Um, I think belief, belief for me is important in terms of the practice of writing because... I guess even in maybe it's like a self selfish way or like a um, this need I have to like feel like what I'm doing is purposeful or important. I have to believe in it, um, and I think even just as like a mode of survival, when not everything around you or maybe nothing around you is built for you, built to protect you. I think it's important to believe, it sounds corny, but believe in yourself and like your ability to mould language in a way that feels um, more correct for you. Because this idea of like having fixed terms and fixed meanings, um, this is what we're taught. Um, I mean, everyone, that's, we're taught that everything has a specific meaning and that um, things can only have a singular meaning and a singular definition and I think when you come into your identity especially as you know non-white person or like a queer person or um yeah I think I think it's just part of the process of learning about yourself true I don't know if that's yeah a good I'm always answer. wondering whether there's like a different form of belief that's like maybe opening yourself up to more contingencies involved in it or yeah. something yeah because you do mention formless as well which I think is really important when thinking about how things come into the world in some way. It's like, is it new? Is it an alteration? Or is it something that we need to gather time around in order to figure it out? Yeah, and I think it's just important to believe in, like, possibility because obviously what we have right now is not working. Yeah. So what else do... Like, what other choice do we have than to believe in something else? True. Yeah. Um, one more question, just because I'm greedy. Um, you're talking about contingency as well, and I kind of, I think you were talking about it as something that is like, po like both possibilities at once in a sort of way, or something that opens up to maybe holding the contradiction in itself. Um, are there sort of, and I, you do a lot of written text, which can be really fixed in a way, like it's, it's difficult, but, and it can be hard to translate the contingency in that. Um, do, but can you think of, in terms of language and communication, I suppose, beyond the written word, like, are there other forms of contingency that you think are really particular to our space? Because I think about the fact that we have such little space and time because things are so quick um, in terms of communication. It is, we don't have the time for language to gather legs and breath and actually 
be tra like transmute beyond multiple people in a metaphorical sense before we come to an agreement as well. Is that, um, yeah, this is the sort of contingencies you can think of or I think of tone as well being something that is missing and how do you deal with that in the written text for yourself? Um, it's funny you said that, like, even though I know it's true as well, like, um, a lot of my work can be, um, like, difficult and, like, can seem fixed. But, like, that's, like, so the opposite of, like, I, what I want it to be. Um, and it's not your fault that the representation does that. No, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just, like, even, like, the politics of, like, publishing something or, like, thinking that something is done, I feel like that is something that I struggle with, even though, like, as a writer, you kind of have to do that. Yeah. Um, What's the question? Um, what is the question? Contingencies and like <laughs> things that you think that make it more challenging beyond the text being like sort of seemingly representationally fixed. Because I think of like the lack of tone and timbre in the written like, like struggle to Yeah, I think it's like I want to find a way to make it musical on a page and um, even improve how I read it out loud. Like I'm... I'm not a, I don't consider myself a very strong public speaker and I get really nervous and so like my voice can kind of go really monotone um but yeah I think words deserve like musicality which you know it or it does most of the time when like we're just talking to each other on a daily basis in like a non like professional setting or whatever um and I don't think that that should that shouldn't like that should apply to writing on the page as well. Yeah, we just got to figure out how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> now, does anybody else out there have a question? Yeah. Oh. oh. Sorry. Thanks. Hi, G. Hi. It's working. Um, you mentioned briefly that writing uh, is an act of service towards listening, something like that. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that and maybe your mention of Fatima Al-Qadiri, um, if there was something in relation to those two pieces? Um, I just really like that quote that she said. Um, I was, when I was in New York with my partner, he bought um, this like zine that Fatima had made um, and I don't know if, like, there were a lot of copies, but, um, I, she's just talking, it, it's like, I think in the form of an interview, and she's talking about her process and her practice of making music, um, especially in a non-Western context. Um, I just thought that was really beautiful, and just the idea of, like, the human voice being, like, an ultimate, um, sign of devotion, I think is true. Um, in terms of writing as a service to listening, I think if I'm not writing to someone, like it's important for me to have an addressee in mind when I'm writing something, otherwise I find it really hard to focus the language. And I also think it's important to have a reader in mind um, and I think that in itself is a form of listening, like picturing someone in your mind, um, whether you know them or not, I think um, is a way for me to feel like I'm in 
like I'm in dialogue with someone rather than just writing to myself or writing to no one. I don't know if that answers your question. Hi. In reference to having someone to write to, whether yourself or someone else, have there, has there been periods where you've assigned the addressee, but then the addressee gets joined by a whole crowd of people who are uninvited, and has that influenced your writing or thwarted it? Ooh. <laughs> um, wait, do you mean literally, literally or theoretically? <laughs> um, no. Uh, sometimes. But usually as like a group of people, not if I know them. Like not, I can't do that if I know every single person in that group, like personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I have a question on the side. Arvin, Arvin, wait. Arvin, on this, on this note. Arvin's um, got a question. I know, right? Arvin's got to wait. Um, I was just thinking about prayer as like a form of, when you're engaging with like a transcendental disembodied figure and your idea of like writing to specific people that are actually within your world, do you think that there is like a difference when you sort of picture someone in mind and the image of them and the practice of like, you know, sort of, the transcendental throwing away to something else that isn't actually, that's um, an ideal, not a reality. I don't think there's a difference, I think, between writing to someone real and writing to something or someone, like, divine or something. I think um, anytime I'm writing, I'm, like, even though my writing is not, like, um like a traditionally like fiction story or anything, I still think of it as like not true. Like I'm not writing nonfiction. Like I'm, I'm still imagining. Like I often think of like a spiritual like power that you know I can't necessarily picture, but I often try to think about that when I'm writing. Yeah. Um, my question was probably resting more on the same branch as Rouge's question in like the relation to a, a listener or an audience that you're picturing when you're writing and writing specifically to that image or like your perception of how that person listens or reads. Um, how, f with the question of like other people entering that room and listening when they weren't invited, how fixed do you think uh, that thing on the other side of your perception is like how? Um. Do you mean like how, how much attention do I pay to like that perspective? Reading? Well, I mean, do you think there's more space on the other side of that? Like you have a, I guess like a, um, a kind of effigy in mind of like the person that is listening, that is like your perception of that. And then like mm -hmm. what happens to, like how many people can join in after that? Like maybe you're, have written something yeah. that is meant for an ear yeah. that uh, pricks a new ear in like yeah. another listener, and therefore like the room expands and like people. Um, well, usually, if I have like just say a close friend in mind when I'm writing something, um, which is not always the case, 
But if that's the case, I I usually feel like that is a no wait, let me let me scrap that. I feel like I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like I write to someone specific. Like thinking about like thinking about all the things I know about that person in order to figure out how they're going to receive that text. It's more just like for me, it makes it. It makes the practice of writing so much more meaningful if I feel like I'm writing to someone. Does that make sense? Rather than like writing it for someone to understand, like like more as like a letter. Yeah, rather than. Yeah. Yeah. I've got another question in the same vein. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh, uh, I this joke appeared in my head, which was going to stay there, which was if public speaking makes you nervous, if you're trying to write to more than one person, does that make you nervous? But that's not really yes, the question. All the time. <laughs> Um, I think it's maybe the same question, but the way that I wanted to ask it was um, if you are writing to an imaginary person, um, what happens to that imaginary person, do you think, when someone is reading your work? Are they reading a version of that person or does that person disappear? And then also... Is it always the same person, or is it different people in different writings? And if if it's a, if it's different people, does that really ch- does it change your writing a lot from the reader's perspective? You think if you're writing to a different person or a different piece? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think it changes like the. It definitely doesn't change the form of the text, or it doesn't change like my intention with how I use language. I guess. A way to maybe make it clearer is that I often, I often write to just say like people like Audrey Lord or um, Drink Team Ming Ha, like my elders in writing I call them, who you know have written things that have really affected me in the past, and so I feel like now I'm gonna make something in response to that. I guess that's what I mean by addressing someone. Um, and I usually also have like my parents in mind when I write something because. Every time I write something new, I'll send it to my mom and my dad, and they'll be like, "We love it and support you, but we don't really understand it." And like, <laughs> I don't. And like, that's not a bad thing, but I just want to say, like, I always say, like, you do understand it. Like, there's no one way to understand it. And also, it's you know, that's my issue. That as a writer, that's my responsibility to work on. Like, you know, I studied writing in in university, and like, I went to a higher education institution, and like. I'm very privileged to be have been able to do that, but now coming out of that, it's my responsibility to make that accessible. Because like, otherwise, what's the point of like just regurgitating like I don't know theory when like you know the people who raised me can't even understand it. <laughs> I mean it. Um, you mentioned failure with language, something I'm very familiar with, um, but I picked up a new extreme, faith, you mentioned faith with language, something new for me today. Um, is there a compromise? Do we need to find a compromise? Or have you found a compromise? Do you mean a compromise with how I use language? 
Yeah, I think I compromise how I use it every day. I think that language is never, like, language is hard and, you know, experience is uncontainable. Like, you can't, con you can't even contain it in, like, a poem or a sentence or even if, you know, every time my friend asks me how, how are you, I don't even know how to answer that. Like, I just say good because it's easy, but, like, that doesn't mean that's actually how I feel. I feel like words... Um, Words can be really limited, so I think everyone who uses language all the time is compromising it. And also, I'm bilingual, so I feel like I have to compromise how I communicate with my parents in terms of, like, I always, like, mix Vietnamese and English, and that's for me, and, like, code switching between, you know, depending on who you're communicating with, I think you're always compromising. Um, I think you said that you feel like a subject under shared governance, I think, at one stage, you, you mentioned, um, which is quite, I think, a very interesting image. Can you elaborate on that idea? Um, I want to say no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I wrote that, like, I wrote that section of the text, like, a few years ago. Um, I guess when I wrote that, I was thinking of... I was thinking, I had just come out of um, university doing honours in poetry and I was thinking a lot about being a writer in the institution and like how I felt like academic writing was not um, necessarily a home for the writing that I wanted to do. And I ended up writing my thesis about that, which was a really interesting experience. And I guess that text came out of that. But also, I wrote that um, I wrote that poem um, alongside my friend Amy Parker, who it was for her um, solo exhibition in 2017. And I guess I was just thinking about her work in specifically. A gallery setting and what it meant to have like my text on a piece of paper um, in relation to her art and how people would experience that in the gallery space. Yeah. Hey Chi. Um, Hi. Thank you so much for your talk. Thanks um, for coming. I was thinking a bit about, I'm also obsessed with that Claudia Rankin quote of Myung Mi Kim. Um, the like, idea of what alerts alters. Um, and it made me think about your chapbook, um, I Occupy Space, which is to say I'm always grieving. <laughs> Thanks um, for saying the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I loved in that book, like, the repetition in that, the repetition with change in that. Um, and I, I guess I just wondered if you could talk a bit about the writing process of that, if you wanted to, um, like, if, if part of, if that idea of like what alerts alters is kind of like affected your writing process, like it feels like that, that text kind of like hears itself and metabolizes itself or something. Totally, and you're the one who actually, like when you read that, I think you messaged me about that chapbook like a while after it came out and you said something really beautiful about it and like really poignant in a way that I would never have been able to like describe my own writing. You said that it like eats away at itself in this like way where my, the writing like repeats and repeats and repeats and like certain words kind of fall out of sentences. Um, 
And yeah, like you just said, the way that language can metabolize itself on the page, depending on how you write it. Um, I really related to that. So thank you for describing my work in a way that I don't even know how to describe it. Um, in terms of what alerts, alters, I think just as like a three-word sentence, that's true, and not just the language, but everything. Not to sound like I'm trying to like say something profound, but yeah, I guess that's the only way I can answer it right now. I yeah, I'd like to think about it. Yeah. Can I ask one more question? Hi. I thought back on earlier when we were putting this together and I capitalised some parts of your title as well and you said um, you wanted to divert from that. But I'm like, this is something to elaborate on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, can you so, talk to the wanting to not give something a sort of title, noun, f sort of particular... Yeah, concept? so Fiona's saying how, like, the title of this, like, talk or whatever, it's called Attention is a Form of Prayer, and I specifically, like, didn't want is a form of prayer, any of those words to be capitalised. Um, and, like, I had to correct you guys because <laughs> you thought it might have been, like, a grammatical error. But I do that on purpose because... Um, I just don't like like the imagery of like any word being more important than another. And you know, I still capitalize the first word of every sentence when I write something and I use full stops and I I use like commas and stuff, but I think for me it's a way to acknowledge that every word in that sentence is supposed to be there and it means something and in the order that I wrote it. Um yeah, I guess it's just about intention. Yeah. I think Autumn wants yeah, to ask Autumn's got one again. The mic is coming to you, darling. Hi, thank you so much, Chi. Um, thank you. I couldn't not not ask a question as a way of an opening, by which I mean in response to what you have opened through what you have spoken. And I guess... Um, I wanted to ask about the form of poetry as a way to um, challenge the static and the limitations of language and why you feel like you um, want to write within that form and write your way out of it as well at the same time. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you feel about that. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um... I think I really like this idea of writing, this form of writing that's called auto theory, which basically just means, and like, basically means that um, you theorize, you make your own critical theory from your own lived experience, which I think is what all critical theory is. Um, and a lot of it is like people people who haven't lived that experience, writing that theory on someone else's life or a group of people's um, lived experience, which is deeply unethical. Um, and that doesn't mean that what I feel like I'm exploring is ethical either or like um, not flawed. I think it's just a way for me to, like you said, challenge that 
idea of um, theory as this concept where, like, you can only theorise in this very broad way when I think... I mean, like, people like Audre Lorde does it um, and Claudia Rankine does it, um, Maggie Nelson does it, May May does it, Jackie Wang does it. Um, I think people, the writers who are and artists who I really look up to, they theorise from their own lived experience and make their own theory that feels true to them. And I think that's really important. And I think it's really important to listen to people who do that. Yeah. Is that it? Um, before we say thanks, I'm going to plug something really quickly. Oh, wait, we've got someone else. Where are you? Oh, Hi, sir. Um, hello. Um, thank you, Chi. I'll continue. Um, I was interested in sincerity. So, like, you kind of, like, provide us, like, a cacophony of, like, like energy. Like, you kind of write as energy. And you kind of pose this idea of, like, dressing sincerity or failed reciprocity um, and moulding something to be more answerable but not answering or not giving a definitive. Um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I guess I'm interested in, like, is sincerity... Can you, can you actually be sincere? Wow. In, like, when, they'll, when like, um, perhaps... Like, I transparency. Think... What? Perhaps, like, trans the transparency of the thing... Of the, of the way that things come to be. Like, there's, it's not, like the world is not transparent about itself. No, its, but I think you can, you can try your best to be sincere about the fact that the world isn't transparent. Do you know what I mean? Or, like, try and work with language in a way where... At least maybe try find your own way of coming to sincerity in language that maybe doesn't exist yet. I feel like you do that with your art. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I I guess yeah. I'm still thinking a lot about politics of sincerity and the possibility of sincerity. So my answer is no. no. <laughs> All right, we might have to question, wrap up because it's time to have a drink. So yeah. I invite everybody to come and have a drink over there yeah. in a sec. Um, I just want to plug that we've got another one of these happening on Saturday. This Saturday, no, next Saturday, Patrick Hardigan uh, is going to present at 3 p.m. on the 7th of September at Buxton Contemporary. It is Buxton Contemporary, um, which is a really beautiful big space that's just around the corner as well, and the work looks really amazing. Everybody, thank Chi for a wonderful, beautiful. Thank you so much for coming.